This episode of See Here is brought to you by Casper the Friendly Ghost and dedicated to our number one, See Here, Daniel Johnson super fan, Sticky Fingers. Wish you were here, Sticky. We miss you already. <laughs> of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris and I'm based in Melbourne and on the Skypes we have Mr. Tim Merrill out there in Seoul in South Korea. Good morning. And normally I'd be introducing our compadre from Bath in England, Mr. Bernard Stickwell, but we believe that he couldn't make it to today's recording because he's at an ABBA convention, so hope you're enjoying doing the Mamma Mia <laughs> and singing Ring Ring and all that sort of thing, Bernie, and we'll look forward to having you back on next month's program. But we do have a very special guest. We like to keep this as the terrific trio. We have a First timer to the program, Ms. Kerry Fristo. Thanks for joining us, Kerry. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, you're based out in Boston, if I recall correctly. Is that true? That's correct. Yes. Now, Beantown. Before <laughs> before we sort of go into what it is that we're going to be talking about film-wise today, just for our listeners out there, just to give a little bit of perspective, we started speaking over the Books of Faces. You're also on the uh, GGTMC Facebook page, and you had gone and done an episode with the gents back in December, talking about uh, Tsoi Hark's Peking blues and I was listening to that and thinking wow she really really knows her stuff and then I think you put up a post or somewhere about a film very near and dear to my heart Charlie Varick and I thought right okay got to get in touch and we Mm. did and started talking about film and just give us a little bit of a background about your love of film and your love of music my love of film goes back to I don't know birth I think I've just always loved film Uh, my dad turned me on to a lot of movies and since he was the original Turner Honor, I guess, of the, of films. I, I mostly watched a lot of, like, sort of, I guess, guy-centric adventure films. Mm-hmm. So things like Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, The Hustler, Cool Hand Luke, all these kind of films were the ones that he originally, you know, turned me on to. <laughs> we have one thing that we moved when I was in about the ninth grade and we our house wasn't ready so we stayed in a hotel for a week and it had cable and the cable played the same movies you know there were like five movies over and over it's the beginning of cable here and I think we saw Where Eagles Dare like 67 times and that oh, yeah. and so <laughs> I still have that memorized you know <laughs> so you know Broadsword Calling Danny Boy Broadsword Calling Danny Boy is just sort of like part of my upbringing but yeah I've always really liked like film, I just like watching it. And then at some point, only a few years ago, I started writing about it. And I have my own blog called Prowler Needs a Jump. It's on WordPress. And I talk about a really weird sort of eclectic set of films, everything from new films that, that are you know, sort of newer. I've talked about The Descent and Grave Encounters and I don't know, other films that are newer. I wrote an article about The Babadook and The Invitation and things like that. Mm-hmm. But also films from the 20s and 30s and 40s and Betty Davis and you know, so all, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place in terms of film. I also write for the Brattle. The Brattle Theater is kind of a, a big deal. It's an important independent theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They call it America's unofficial film school, which I don't know if wow. that's true, but that's what the website says. Um, <laughs> and I write for their blog too, and some other ones, and I've done some <laughs> other podcasts and things like that. But I've also always been really interested in music. I actually made my living as a musician at some point in my life. Wow. Many years ago. So I'm very proud of that. <laughs> it wasn't a hugely long period of time, but it happened. You were the singer of, of the band, I think? You... I was. I was the front person and the singer for a band called Mass Ave, which is a, a main thoroughfare in Boston, uh, Massachusetts Avenue. And it's where Berkeley College of Music is, which if you are a musician or you follow music, you know, that's a real big deal. Oh, yeah. It's like Juilliard, yeah. Yeah, it's the Boston Juilliard, I guess, in a way. But it's a little more funky. They have a lot more jazz involved, right? 
rather than I, I always think of Juilliard as more classical, but maybe mm-hmm. I'm wrong. But all the guys in my band went to Berkeley, except wow. me. <laughs> but we we went on a tour of the Caribbean. We did uh, Puerto Rico, Panama, Antigua, really neat. And then uh, did, did a second tour with some of the same people, some different people in the band of Turkey, Greece, Italy, Spain, Israel. Really neat. Wow. A pretty fantastic experience. That was back in the 80s. So I'm not 22, but I'm not telling you how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> You're 25, have, 25. Yeah. 25. That's what I'm 25, I say, but I have a daughter who's in college, so somehow right. the math doesn't work, but that's okay. But yeah, I, I haven't done it for a long time, but it was a big part of my life back then, and I really do love wow. music and films about music. And my dad is a jazz DJ. Oh, wow. Um, wow. So he's really got an eclectic and unbelievably encyclopedic knowledge of jazz and different kinds of jazz. Oh. And so- my daughter is also a DJ at college. She's a journalism major at college in Boston, and she's a, a DJ. DJ on their radio station. It's kind of neat. Running, running right through the generations. That's awesome. That's magnificent. Yeah, so if only we could do something that made money, that would be... <laughs> what, in, in music? In the 21st century? Mm, the little impossible, we, we tend to think. So is there any video footage on YouTube that we can look at of Mass Ave? Oh, I wish. Not that I know of. Not that I know of. I'm, I'm friends with a couple of my former bandmates on Facebook, though. I, occasionally they show pictures, which is kind of funny. So there is photographic evidence that this did occur. That we were on TV in Puerto Rico, I know. Pretty interesting. Uh, just a local TV did a whole profile on us, and they came to one of our gigs and filmed us and everything, and or taped us, I guess. But I have no idea. It's probably you know was used for firewood or something sometime. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> So did you ever make any recordings? Not really. Well, I mean, I have with different bands, but I, to be honest with you, nothing really survived. You know the way everybody records everything now? Mm-hmm. I mean, every, everything your kids do is you have a picture of. Sure. Well, if your kids are young enough anyway. That's not the way it was then. So you just sort of did things. Well, yeah, I mean, I know that the recordings were made. You know, someone made recordings because I know there were friends that had either four or eight track smaller systems. And there were a couple of times when people had a little bit more intricate systems and I, and I went in and recorded recorded a few things but I don't have any of them you know they, okay. they're not it's not something I have a copy of so it may be floating out there somewhere you know it's sort of blackmail juice if I ever run for office I don't know <laughs> <laughs> never mind anyway look, thanks very much for giving us that background so once again your blog spot is prowlerneedsajump.wordpress.com and yes. the the one for the for the cinema what was that again um it's it's called Brattle Film Notes it's the Brattle Theater in Boston okay. or brattleblog.brattlefilm Okay. Just look up my name under Carrie Fristo. Okay, we'll look that up and include that in the show notes when this program goes out. So the reason that you're here, the reason that we're here, is to talk about a film that was requested. So at the beginning of each year, for the last couple of years, we've reached out to the members on our Facebook group for See Here and said, make some requests and we will cover them. Well, at least in this case, three, because we actually had about maybe 20 requests, so not too bad at all. But we picked three and we're going to go over the, the, the course of the year. We'll do maybe one every four months that's uh, been requested by someone on the Facebook group. And this first time around, we've selected the film that was put forward to us by a fellow called Scott Smart. I met him just the once, I think, on Record Store Day, maybe about three years ago here in Melbourne at Basement Discs. Thanks for putting out this suggestion, Scott, that was The Devil and Daniel Johnston. So what we're going to do now is play the trailer for the film, and then we'll be back in a moment or two for the three of us to actually talk about this film and actually read a little bit of feedback that Scott has sent to me so we get his perspective about the film as well. So uh, thanks very much for downloading and listening. You're listening to See Here Podcast, episode 51. We'll be back in a moment. Johnson, this is the name of my tape, and it's Hi, How Are You? And I, I was having a nervous breakdown when I recorded it. Try to remember, but my feelings can't And he was a skinny little kid, fairly demented, and he said, I just wanted to give you my tape. And I put it on the tape player, and it just blew my mind. There's really nothing to even compare it to. It, it goes way beyond Dylan's basement recordings, any other body of work that I can think of. You start off hearing this noise. And eventually, you hear the Beatles. You hear the whole symphony. But it was undeniable that something was dreadfully wrong with him. He was thin as a rail, losing weight. Was completely delusional. He was hospitalized almost immediately. 
He was obsessed with the devil and Satan. He became so obsessed that it was all he could talk about. This is Daniel Johnston speaking from a mental hospital. They tell me I'm crazy here. Ooh, out come the demons. Ooh. Episode 51 of C here, Morris over here, Tim over there, Kerry even further out over there. As I said before, we're going to be talking today about the film The Devil and Daniel Johnston. Released, oh, I've seen two different release dates. Uh, one says 2005, the other one says 2006, but we won't be too fussy about that. Directed by a fellow called Jeff Feuerzeig. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. The IMDB description says Daniel Johnston, manic depressive genius slash singer slash songwriter slash artist, is revealed in this portrait of madness, creativity, and more. I don't really think I want to use the IMDb descriptions anymore, but I do like to get something summed up in a couple of sentences, but they just don't seem to do it right. Before we get into our thoughts about the film, as I mentioned before, Scott Smart, who is the fellow who requested that we do this film, has sent me an email, and I just want to quickly read this out to get his perspective on the film. He says, Hi Morris, I saw the great reviews and positioning on many best of lists for the movie. I really enjoyed the way the documentary presented what happened without apparent bias. Questions were raised, then answered, allegations were made, then supported or denied in the film. For example, the accusation about who gave him the acid that caused his break in Austin and Gibby Haynes' direct, clear denial immediately. No illusions, just reportage. I think your enjoyment of Daniel's music would influence your enjoyment of the film. His stuff really clicked with me, so I saw the film as an interesting creative life story, not a study of mental health issues. I bought the late, great Daniel Johnson CD with the covers and the originals. I continue to get a smile when I hear his songs or news of his ongoing career. The movie does what all good movies do. It makes you feel. I felt amazed at his actions while in psychotic break. I felt fear and sadness in the interviews with his parents and the story of the undertaker's wife. I felt joy in his music and his reflections and observations on his life. Thanks for the great podcast. All the best to you and yours. Have a great day, Scott. Thanks extremely, Scott. That's a, a really wonderful letter, really great description of what it is that you love about the film and what you love about Daniel's music. In terms of where we stand, well, let's start this discussion. Kerry, you're the guest. You had not seen the film before. Had you actually heard Daniel's music before? No, no, I hadn't. I came in completely blind on this, I must say. Quite fascinating. I agree with what Scott said. I liked the fact that they really did make a documentary rather than a sort of one-sided pushing of an agenda of some sort. I was waiting for the parents to be the bad guys. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I was waiting for. From the beginning when they started off and they started talking about the fact that they were a religious family, I thought, oh, there it is. They're going to, you know, say that it, the, the reason that he, his whole downfall is because they made him go to church or something. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, they didn't. And I'm very happy to see that they were able to make it that, you know, you have a mental illness like that, it's it's chemical. There's, <laughs> I don't think that's an environmental thing. You know, I think that's a chemical thing and uh, the poor parents can only deal with what they can deal with. Tim, now you and I had some Skype discussions over the last couple of weeks about what we thought about Daniel's music and the film in general without sort of giving away all the cookies, you know, yeah. too far in advance of, of the discussion that we're going to have. Your initial thoughts about Daniel and his music and initial thoughts about
thoughts about the film? I had heard Daniel Johnson's music years and years and years ago because it used to be a really amazing fanzine that was out called Forced Exposure, actually, that I think came out of your area, Kerry, back in the 80s. And now they basically are an uh, independent distributor of smaller labels, but they first came out as a magazine. And that was the first time I'd seen reviews of Daniel Johnson and I'd heard about Daniel Johnson. And then I got to hear Yip Jump on uh, late night radio on Canadian CBC radio. called Brave New Waves. The guy Brent Bambury that would just play anything and everything on uh, national radio across Canada from like midnight until 6 a.m. And that's when I start, first started to hear Daniel's music and I just thought, you know, it sounded like somebody's weird, demented uncle playing the toy piano initially. And then the more, you know, it intrigued me and the more I started to listen more and more, there were, you know, it wasn't just a kitsch thing. It became something like there was something deeper and, you know, and I think with all solid music initially it's something that kind of pricks your ear to begin with but then you know you just can't immediately dismiss it there's something else there that is meant to be deciphered and if you're really uh, the kind of curious type like i am you'll take the time to try to decode or decipher what's going on with it in regards to the documentary itself i have to agree with carrie that it is a documentary and it's not just a one-sided piece and what i like about the documentary is the fact that it shows daniel john from all angles. It shows him as a sympathetic character. It shows him as a bit of an asshole sometimes. Mm-hmm. It, sh- it shows him as a tragic character and it also shows him as a beautiful and optimistic character. But I think the documentary really shows the full spectrum of who this guy is and what he's all about. And in some regards, I think the people that are surrounding him in different ways are just as quote-unquote crazy as he is. I mean, one of the questions that I guess comes up from the film and it's inevitable I think you know after watching the film Shine many years ago about the story of David Helfgott and David Helfgott went on tour became famous again after his story was taken to the public and so there were questions raised are people taking advantage of him by putting him out in the limelight and it was basically the pressure of being out in the limelight that had caused him to have his mental breakdown so immediately I've started thinking is it a good thing that Daniel Johnson gets this time in the limelight like is that causing more problems for him than it is being curative and there's no doubt that whatever one thinks about his singing voice and his musicianship that music is just something that is in him it is something that he has to do he has this right, huge right. body of work and right. you know what you were saying there Tim about after a while you sort of can't ignore what it is that he's doing and by, by virtue of the fact that he has this huge body of work I guess that really makes sense if he'd only sort of gone and come out and made one or two cassettes and then faded mm-hmm. away you might be sort of like less inclined to go look into what it was that he did thinking oh yeah right. it was just a blip on the map there was nothing to it even if the songs would have been exactly the same but if he's putting out cassette right. after cassette after cassette and then album after, album after album he's just so prolific then you start to look at well what is it that he is actually saying and like any songwriter he is looking at themes of love he's looking at themes of the devil being on his shoulder and right. like this was my first serious time listening to the music I had heard him at spots over the years I'm pr- pretty sure that I'd heard his music a little bit on 3RRR or 3PBS here in Melbourne and it is probably also fair to say that you know other singers who I like had awkward voices over the years so like you know first hearing Daniel Johnson I sort of thought yeah a little bit like Neil Young and when I first heard Neil Young I couldn't stand him and that's what prevented me from listening to him until maybe Freedom came out and I sort of thought right okay I get the songwriting is absolutely brilliant and then I went through the back catalogue but by virtue of the fact that all of Daniel's music was originally released on cassettes recorded on lo-fi cassette recorders it was not presenting his music hi-fi-wise in the best light. And I know that there are a lot of people who say, well, that's part of the charm and it's part of the honesty. But just purely from a pleasurable music listening experience, that was what was turning me off. This is the David Thornberry from Daniel Johnston. And Dave, here I am on MTV holding up my tape. Hi, how are you? And they're recording me tonight. I'm on MTV. Remember when we used to watch MTV back home? Look, I'm on MTV, David.
Well, yeah. before we get into this too deeply, I think what we should do is really explain to people that don't have any idea about who Daniel Johnson really was. I think the thing is, you have to realize he, he's a guy basically who came up in West Virginia in the late 70s, early 80s, and he was just an energetic kind of artistic soul who was into, you know, basically focusing on drawing, and then he started writing music, and he just started independently putting out these little cassettes to a really small niche surrounding him, and he wasn't a guy that was intent on hitting the big leagues, so to speak. He was just initially a guy who was putting art out there for the world to embrace, to really just acknowledge. He would make these cassettes and just walk up to people, hi, I'm Daniel Johnson, I want you to listen to my cassette. And then, you know, even in the in the documentary, people would say, well, I'll review it, maybe I'll, I'll consider it. He goes, oh, I don't want you to review it, I just want you to listen to it. He was a guy who basically was focused on his art, like to a point of compulsion, it grew yeah. and grew and grew when he was very young. Eventually, he becomes a cult figure, and partly in due to uh, Nirvana, Sonic Youth, and a lot of the other uh, independent bands that came out of the East Coast, you know, in the uh, 80s and 90s. And then, you know, eventually Daniel got more acclaim and, you know, more people suddenly bent to near. And then partially in due to the fact of MTV and other you know, media outlets giving him some acknowledgement. And then it just went from there. I want to ask you something, Tim, and you as well, Kerry, if you've heard of this guy. I'd only, like, in the last day or so, searched out the music of a fellow called Wesley Willis. Now, my friend Pat had gone and said to me, the, we're having a discussion during the week about Daniel Johnston. And I said, is there anyone else who's done anything even remotely similar or, or been in a remotely similar situation to Daniel Johnston? And he said the only person who we could think of was Wesley Willis. And I listened to a couple of songs and I believe he had schizophrenia. And yeah, that's what it says. So yeah, he did. Either of you heard his music or know anything about him? I was Spider-Man's ass. I was Spider-Man's ass. I was Spider-Man's ass. I was Spider-Man's ass. Spider-Man messed with my girlfriend. Spider-Man wrapped his arms around her with my bedroom door closed. Suddenly I opened the bedroom door on Spider-Man's sneaky ass. I'll call him kissing my girlfriend and beat him to a pub with a rubber hose. I actually saw Wesley perform wow. in uh, Canada back in the early 2000s. And it was kind of a situation almost like Daniel, where he was on stage, but he played with a Casio organ mm. on stage. And basically, you know, he played to a click track and... It was so funny because Wesley Willis was more like, his songs were more kind of like snippets of thought. He would be like, you know, Dunkin' Donuts is the place I like to eat my donuts. I ride the bus. I will give you a headbutt because I love you. You know, like, you know, that kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, he, he was he was just right out. And, and he did. If he liked you, he'd come up to you and give you a headbutt. And I'm talking about cracking your skull. Wow. Yeah, he was kind of a guy where a lot of people looked at him as a spectacle. A lot of people felt bad because they were like the embarrassment of, of looking at somebody up there doing it like half the people said his songs are great which they said that authentically and then there was other half the people that were just laughing at this giant you know obese black man behind the keyboard writing these songs and saying you know like fuck off Debbie Gibson I hope you die and stuff like that you know just these crazy crazy songs Wesley Willis he wasn't a rich man by any means I mean he you know he had enough to eat and he had minders people that had to keep track of him but it, it gave him an outlet it mm. gave him yeah. an outlet. And, and he was also a, a visual artist as well. He wasn't just a singer. He was like Daniel. He was somebody that was really prolific with his art. And I find that interesting how a lot of cases, I mean, I'm no expert of mental illness, you know, but I find it interesting how a lot of times with people who are uh, musical performers, it's not just the musical angle. It's also a visual angle. It's kind of like part, part and parcel. It's kind of combined, which I find just utterly fascinating. Mm. And well, the, the film certainly does give quite a fair bit of time to the art side of things. Something that I read about I, I think that took place outside of the filming, maybe like years after the documentary came out, there seemed to be some level of animosity I think between Jeff Tatarkov, who was Daniel's long-standing manager before Daniel sacked him, and we'll probably come to that part of the story shortly, but there was some level of animosity between Jeff and Daniel's family who basically said, you're just trying to sell Daniel's stuff to make money and there are enough people who've asked for Jeff said, look, you know, there was no greater supporter out 
outside of his family than Jeff was. There's no way. But this is the sort of thing that in a situation like this, you imagine, yeah, this is where it gets nasty. The film never sort of really shows that part of the story. And this may, as I said, may well have happened after the film came out 2006. I wonder if Daniel had remained completely oblivious to all that to all that uh, nastiness. It gets into an issue you said earlier about Shine and, you know, where you get this idea or, or kind of not an idea, but maybe insinuations or something that somebody becomes a meal ticket for somebody else. Right. I didn't exactly get that impression with Daniel Johnston. Maybe I missed something, but as you said, Morris, what they said about, what's his name? Tartikoff? Tartikoff. Jeff yeah. Tartikoff, that there's no bigger cheerleader for Daniel than him. And, and that they made the allusion to the Broadway Danny Rose manager who, <laughs> you know, gives his all for a client and then gets basically screwed. I got to make a few changes. Like what kind of changes? Like management. What do you mean management? Like, what do you mean management? That seemed <laughs> pretty accurate. I mean, right. it, it didn't. It didn't seem like Tartikoff was was trying to take advantage. He no, wasn't no, sure that's, making that's money kind of off not, it. Not what I was trying to say. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it like that. I mean, let me. I guess elaborate. What I meant to say was that yeah, Jeff. I feel was authentic in, in his help with Daniel and everything he was doing. What I meant to say was that when people start to realize the ramifications of how valuable somebody is, then everybody else starts looking at them as a meal ticket. Mm. Oh no, I, I knew. I, I understood what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I don't I think just, he was. I don't think he was. But I'm just saying, no. whenever, whenever it starts dawning on everybody else around Daniel, like, oh, geez, he's really worth that much. Like, oh, sh-, you know, like, and that's yeah. what that's when all the kind of backbiting and everything comes into it. Jeff was doing it out of a place of love, but I think that eventually, as Daniel's notoriety develops and he, you know, and, and the value of his art and everything else develops, then really, I think you get into kind of a murky waters of moral. Well, I'd be curious to know what happens to the value of his art after he passes. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't mean to be morbid about it, but no, no. I mean, it could end up being a feeding frenzy when that happens, because the, the physical art, along with the music and the master recordings and things like right. that, some of which Tartikoff seems to own, because he's right. doing dubs, uh, right. dupes of the, of the uh, cassettes and everything to send out. Yeah, that could end up being something I litigious this, later on. <laughs> I could see this becoming, like, and I'm not exaggerating by saying this, I could, I could see his art as when he passes, becoming recognized as someone like Jean-Michel Basquiat. Well, you know who I kept thinking about the entire time I was watching this? I mean, I saw the comparison with Brian Wilson. I feel like, in a way, one of the reasons that perhaps Brian Wilson is more successful was because he actually has more talent as a musician and a singer, as well as a writer. You know, I mean, he can write, but he can also perform it beautifully, and he has that beautifully melodic voice, and the nuance of performing is you know, is not lost on him, where with Daniel Johnson, I think if you're seeing him perform, you're probably going to get a hit or miss situation where some nights he's probably going to be going to be like, holy God, I can't believe what I just watched. That was absolutely amazing. You know, the emotions being laid out there bare. And then other nights you're going to be like, okay, wow. Um, yeah, yeah, that wasn't really that great. That, <laughs> well, that's what the guy, that's what the guy you know? <laughs> actually said in the documentary too, right? Yeah, I think he did say that, you know, you never know what you're going to get basically. Right. And right. But with Brian Wilson, it's a little different. And also he was more laser focused on music where you have Daniel Johnston who I mean you know what I thought was cool the films that he made the little short Super 8 films right yeah what a riot they were great mm. really when he was fun his mom? when he was his mom well, well not even when he was his mom but like the little animation of the guy oh, yeah. with the, bro- the broken head and thing with the guy sitting next to him on the bed he kept with a different shirt every time you t- he talked to him and I thought you know it's very clever there's a certain skill there but because he was sort of split among the, the, the filmmaking the art and the music he wasn't focused in any one particular direction he was right. just sort of you know doing so that may have maybe one of the reasons why he's not as super successful I think as like a Brian Wilson you know <laughs> I, I, I still think that there is a huge difference between his songwriting and Brian Wilson's and it may not necessarily just oh, be yeah. because that Daniel is focused in many directions but a lot of the chord structures of Daniel Johnston's songs are fairly rudimentary 
string, that's not a put down at all because, you know, a lot of my favorite songs is what you do with basic chords. Whereas with Brian Wilson, who, as it turns out, is not necessarily the world's greatest musician, but in his head, he has right. this amazing structure. He understands maybe, um, if not necessarily from a technical perspective, jazz chord structures, but he has all these things in his head and he knows how to write it down or he knows how to get his musical director to write it down for him. But I was speaking for an episode of Love That Album to Darian Sahanaja, who was his musical director for quite a few years. And he was saying that Brian's ability behind the piano is fairly rudimentary. In fact, it's, you, know, you don't really see him touch the piano that much in his concerts nowadays. But what is going on in his head, it just goes way beyond D, A, E7 yeah. right. sort, of, right. sort of stuff. He's got all this stuff in his head. And so for, there was a moment in the film where there's a fellow from a band who is just hanging out and he sees Daniel Johnston and invites him, hey, let's put together this band. And he's rapping to the camera saying, wow, this, you know, like I admire Brian Wilson, but this is Daniel Johnston. He's much better than Brian Wilson. Every time I read something about Daniel in a magazine or something, it mentions Brian Wilson. I honestly think Daniel's far more brilliant than Brian Wilson is. And I sort of thought, yeah, this is part of the a little bit of going over the top. I mean, yeah, we like who we like, right. but yeah, yeah. I think he was getting but excited in the moment, not necessarily taking what? into consideration. Look, pet sounds. Hi, how are right. you? Right. Uh, <laughs> he was also were... wearing a fuck Satan T-shirt. So, I mean, <laughs> you know. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. What you were saying, Morris, about the interpretation of and Brian Wilson's abilities and what's in his head. That's initially like the whole thing that really struck me with watching the documentary about Daniel is that you get people. People who have so much inside that they need to get out, but they really don't have the proper technique or ability to bring it out to the surface, right? And then you've get these people today that are over digitally produced and you know with all their all their layering and uh, you know million track studios and stuff, and it sounds so sweet, but there's nothing to it. Mm -hmm. It's just vapid. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. Daniel had so much to say. Brian Wilson has so much to say. But like I said, the way that it comes out is not necessarily the way that, you know, it's not everything that they're holding inside. Meanwhile, all these people that are putting out stuff today, and everyone goes, wow, that sounds great. But there's nothing, to, it's, like I said, it's just soulless. It's just vapid. Yeah. Right. Brian Wilson, I mean, I feel like his knowledge, like, he's got a big mathematical grid in his head, you know, I mean, because essentially music, the kind of complexity that he writes and has written, I mean, the harmonizing, to bring in orchestration and all these kind of different things, that that's math. It's not as cut and dried as that. Obviously, there's emotion, there's a, you know, a beauty to it, but there's a symmetry to it and there's a mathematics to it, which I think, as Tim just said, perhaps escapes someone like Daniel Johnson, who I don't think has that kind of training. I don't think he has that kind of ability. Not for the complexity, for sure, but here's the thing. He, it's obvious that he does understand popular song structure. I mean, he says a number of times in the film that the Beatles were his idols. In fact, he even wrote a song called The Beatles. When I was born in 61, he had a hit. And they worked so hard and they made it Joe. But they really were very good. They deserve all their success And they earned it Yes, they did They didn't buy their respect And everybody wanted to be like them Everybody wanted to be the Beatles And I really wanted to be like him But he died and mm -hmm. he obviously does understand pop song structure. He's gone and applied it to his particular methodology, what's going on in his head. But you listen to his songs and it becomes more apparent to me, listening via the cover versions of his songs, that he definitely does understand pop song structure. It's not as complex as Brian Wilson's is. Or, I mean, I, we shouldn't keep on making the comparison, but, uh, but he definitely does know yeah. what makes a great song. Just the contention for me is, can I listen to those early cassettes and they're, they're up on YouTube but it's it's interesting for me I've, in advance of this show I went and listened to the late great Daniel Johnston which is uh, as Scott had already gone and made mention in his letter to us there's one CD's worth of songs that people of the like of I think Sparkle Horse and TV on the Radio and Gordon Gano and uh, The Flaming Lips they do their interpretations of his songs right. So you think you found the one Just how you feel And you say that she 
Even in the film, there's, what was her name again? Kathy... McCarthy? Kathy McCarthy. I listened to some of her music. And, you know, they basically all treat his songs with the spirit with which Daniel had intended, but they just give it a little bit more finesse. And we're not necessarily talking about the difference between Sgt. Pepper and Please Please Me, because it's, you know, it's still not overly produced, but they just give it a little bit more something for those of us who maybe don't necessarily appreciate the lo-fi and the very rudimentary instrumental skills that Daniel brings to right. it. They're saying, here is the beauty in these songs and listening to that double album making the comparison although ah I get it of course you get someone like Tom Waits who pretty much does King Kong in a similar sort of way to how Daniel Johnson did but just in a studio with a little bit more of a budget but he's thinking nope this way was good enough for Daniel it's good enough for me but I also went and listened on YouTube to you know a couple of other cuts that really really touched me that weren't necessarily on that album so there were you know Kathy McCarty's version of Living Life and The Eels and you know when you hear Mark Everett doing his thing you already know in advance how that song is going to sound because he has his very own distinctive sound and Wilco's version of uh, True Love Will Find You in the End it, it just broke my heart it was absolutely gorgeous True love will find you in the end You're gonna find out who was your friend Don't be sad, I know you will say that the Daniel Johnson version of that song did the same thing but in the end as a songwriter that becomes immaterial and it's just great that he was able to keep doing what he did right. uh, or maybe still does because he loves it and right. other people can say right well you know, we'll still respect the intent but just make it a little bit more palatable for imbeciles like Morris over in Australia who right. don't appreciate what it is <laughs> that you do so. or Kerry because I feel the same way yeah. okay right well there you go just, yeah. just shift here for, for a minute I want to say something to both of you that might sound a little crazy but just hear me out after watching the whole film about daniel's life and everything one thing immediately came into my head as soon as it ended i thought to myself holy shit this is a wes anderson movie i can say that because it's it's like all the things that happen like for example he falls in love with a girl and she turns around and gets married to a guy who's a funeral director <laughs> and, then, and then he goes to the funeral and she's there and then there's an open casket and he's just saying well i might as well just climb right in he doesn't take it the wrong way he actually uses it as an impetus to basically fuel his creativity not to spoil any of the documentary but you know he winds up working for a carnival and then there's an incident with a plane and then there's all these things and i'm thinking and holy shit, man, this is just yeah. like a Wes Anderson movie. Like it really so this is, is what happens when, when Dudley gets goes out loose, right? Right. From Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Like, this is like a total Wes Anderson movie, right? And uh, we don't... Uh, do listen, I called my manager. I started to talk to him about it. And I was going yep. to... Yeah, I was going to warn him not to say anything to my parents. I was going to say, if you say anything to my parents, I'm going to fire you. And I was saying, I'm, this is a warning and this is a threat. And he says, I don't want to hear any of your damn threats. And he hung up on me. My manager. Now don't you see the devil? The devil Satan is trying to stop Daniel. me from staying in this town. Here's another side of it too, right? Is that when Daniel was really off into the deep zone, things didn't turn out so well between him and uh, his manager and a lead pipe. Right. And I'm not saying he was he would go off on everybody, but you would figure that for her, knowing the kind of obsessive nature that he had, you know, you would figure that you just want to be like, okay, that's it, I'm going to keep my distance now. But no, she didn't do that, you know. And I just because the thought, the, the kind soul in him, there were you know, sure that still attracted her and she loved him as an artist like when I say an artist like as a musician as a songwriter right and she could see the kind soul in him but she thought I can't live with him but right. I want, I'm happy I want to orbit around him because right I, I love the angel but I just can't tolerate the devil yeah exactly and and really this film is as much about those two sides I mean I think the film opens with a, a quote on the screen I believe in God and I believe in the devil and the devil has right. seen my name so it, it's mm -hmm. a little 
little bit strange in the nature of the film. We, I still don't think I quite get, and it's fine that the film sort of makes him out as this enigma where he had this religious upbringing and he spends, there's that moment in the film where in one of his acts of bastardry, but maybe he had no control over it, he climbs the stairs to go into an apartment and completely scares this old woman into jumping out of her apartment. She's completely frightened that he's going to bash her head in with a lead pipe or something because he's trying to chase the devil out of her. But right. there's moments in the film where he says, I'm trying to get rid of the devil. I'm trying to get rid of Satan. I want to do what's right by God. And yet when he's making the comeback, he does that artwork of Satan saying, yeah, Daniel's back. So he has this relationship with both sides of the of the coin, both sides of the equation. We don't see him as a typical, I guess, the popular perception of the Christian evangelizing, except for one moment in the film where I think he's performing in a record store in New York and he's proselytizing to his audience there. Right. He really is an enigma in that regard. The music of Daniel Johnston is something that I think everybody needs to at least be exposed to. Uh, there's really nothing to even compare it to. It, it goes way beyond Dylan's basement recordings or early Robert Johnson or any other body of work that I can think of. I did want to say something else about the structure of the film. I know we've been talking a lot about the events in Daniel's life and his own nature, but it's purely from a technical perspective, what I really loved about the film, and I know that you've already sort of gone and touched on it, both of you, in terms of that it doesn't really take sides. It shows all sides of him as a human being. And really, it's it's a story of all of us. We can all be assholes. We can all be lovely. We can all be empathic. Right. We can all be insensitive. And it becomes more apparent about him. But what I wanted to talk about in terms of how the film, I, I guess from a technical perspective, I admire the fact that Jeff Furt doesn't sort of say, right, well, I'm going to make this film deliberately lo-fi like Daniel's music is, because that would not really, that wouldn't be telling the story adequately. He's not like he's gone and said, I'm going to do a dogma manifesto like Lars von Trier and do something really, really mm-hmm. crazy, because mm-hmm. that's how Daniel would have made his music. He says, no, I'm going to make a proper film. And I think, you know, Tim, we discussed previously on the show, The Replacements documentary, right. which was all talking heads the whole way through, no one associated with the band, and that was very unsatisfactory. And then there was that other film that we didn't talk about it on the show I don't remember whether we agreed or disagreed about this but this is the documentary Super Duper Alice Cooper and right. there's a lot of animation in there and I don't remember I don't think that you actually ever see anyone face to face speaking about Alice and it's more about style rather than for me it tells his story but it's more about here pay attention to how we make this film rather than purely telling his story and right. what I like about I... this film is you get a bit of each you get the animation as you already mentioned Kerry those bits of animation and you get the B-roll footage like when the showing the asylum that he's in we just see the camera pulled down the hallway while we hear his song about Mountain Dew. This is Daniel Johnston speaking from a mental hospital. They tell me I'm crazy here because I love the Mountain Dew so much. I can't get enough of the Mountain Dew. I was sinking deep in sin far from Mountain Dew. I had problems out within nothing that I could do but the Mountain Dew came to me And I drank it all up. Now I'm happy as can be, oh Mountain Dew. And then right. pull back, and I got really very much a sense of the shining there with um, <laughs> the, the because more, not so much just because of the setting, but because of the fact you know Kubrick loved doing those long slow takes down the hallway. So right. we get we get the right. B-roll footage, we get the animation, and we get the straight-ahead interviews with his parents, interviews with his colleagues, and we get that wealth of video footage that Daniel himself had gone and filmed because he was always with a cassette recorder and he was always with video footage all over the place. And I think Jeff has gone and assembled this film really marvellously he's told the story from start to finish as we've always gone and said on this show Tim it's impossible to tell someone's life story within a two hour film certainly not within a two hour biopic but this film never seems to me like a checklist yet we've gone and told that bit boom let's get this off everything flows nicely into each other like the beginning of the film see what interests him in making films and making music and making art but then the next step it doesn't go so well he gets on a motorbike and then he goes off to join the circus or he goes to live with, with his siblings and then next everything seems to be the next logical well not necessarily logical but it seems to follow on from what previously yeah. happened it's not right. a check and i think there's a difference here too with other documentaries or th- or you know retrospects of people is i think and not to say that daniel doesn't have a say in how he's interpreted today but with other documentaries and other artists artists have a complete say on whether or not yeah that's pretty accurate or whether or no that's a pile of shit or whatever you know however they see it but with a subject matter like daniel 
Emmanuel Johnson. I think you, you have to be very sensitive. You, you know, here's a fragile, very fragile individual and a very also resilient individual. But the way that you have to present his story is a way that kind of lifts him up, but also at the same time lays it all on the table. And I think it has to be done in a way that is really kind of honors him and is very respectful, but also at the same time is very truthful. And, it, and it's a real balancing act. I agree with you. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, I thought it was really well done. I, I totally agree. The two films that I kept thinking of and the two subjects that I kept thinking of the entire time I was watching the film was Crumb, the mm -hmm. Terry Zweigoff film, and American Splendor, uh -huh. uh, the film about Harvey Picard. Those right, were the right. two films to me that were more like this than any other music doc that I had seen. It, it's sort of artistic people. I mean, obviously they were all done differently. Like Crumb is a very different film from American Splendor. American Splendor has the real interspersed with, you know, Paul Giamatti playing him and da 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 da. I just, the whole time I was watching, it, I just kept thinking of those two films and those two subjects. All three of them have the same sort of a lack of, of, of emotional connection with other people yeah, yeah. that, you know, and, and also an obsession and a compulsion to do art. Because, I mean, you see Crumb, he draws on everything all the time. You know, he's just constantly drawing on everything and, you, the, the, and you know, Daniel is the same way. He's constantly drawing or he's constantly recording himself. That was hilarious you know. when he got busted uh, drawing on the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> Holy crap. As Daniel's manager, I'm in touch with Steve Shelley on a nightly basis, and all of a sudden one night I get a call that Daniel has been arrested that day. It seems that they decided to take him to the Statue of Liberty. And while Daniel was touring the Statue of Liberty, like any tourist would want to, he apparently was drawing graffiti inside the stairwell. Uh, Christian fish, hundreds of them, from what I understand. I guess it's the anti-Satan symbol. I couldn't believe. I liked the, the policeman talking to him. I can't believe you did that. I cannot believe you did that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but I mean, it's the, the same kind of like that compulsion. And I am not a mental health expert by any stroke of the imagination. But th there was a sort of OCD aspect to it. They, they, sure. You know that they all had, and they all collected things. And Daniel sure. collected things too. He's got that the room full of like all artwork and comic books and you know albums and all the crazy stuff he has and the same with Picar and the same with Crumb. Right. So I found them very much alike in that right. regard. I confess, uh, I sort of thought about Robert Crumb as well, but I hadn't thought about American Splendor as a, as a companion piece to this and I think that's such a good call. Uh, yeah, absolutely. For sure. Another film that kind of spoke to me or I thought of during the uh, viewing of this documentary was uh, Barton Fink because there's the point of where they go to the mental hospital to sign a contract with Daniel and it's like, you know, they're sitting there and they're expecting this wealth of riches from him and then you know within a short period of time it just doesn't come to fruition and it just kind of reminded me of there's a, a scene in Barton Fink when Michael Lerner had just met Barton Fink for the first time and he said give us something with that Barton Fink feeling when he has no idea really what Barton Fink does at all. Right. That really spoke to me. It's like, you know, like, well, you're the guy that made that t-shirt that Kurt Cobain wears. I, I want to sign you up. And then it, it really doesn't come to fruition. I think that's possibly one of the, I won't say more tragic parts of the film, but certainly one of the saddest parts of the film is that, yeah. whole, that whole sequence. And, and this sort of puts pay to the notion that Jeff Tatarkov really did have Daniel's best interests at heart. So there's that whole sequence after Kurt Cobain wearing the t-shirt had attracted the interest of all these record executive types and everyone's having a bidding war to sign him up while he's in a mental hospital. Jeff is working I think with Electra Records mm -hmm. and getting a contract worked out where everything is in Daniel's favour. He doesn't have to tour, he can record an album when he feels like it. If he does do concerts, he has to have time to rest and everything he's doing in Daniel's favour. And mm -hmm. for some reason Daniel gets it in his head that Jeff is Satan. And so that comes up with an offer from Atlantic Records who are obviously like what you're talking about there, Tim, with the comparison with Bart Fink. Oh, yeah, well, right. he's the guy on the Kurt Cobain T-shirt. Yeah, we'll, we'll pay twice as much. He go and, and Daniel Sachs' manager, goes with Atlantic. First album on Atlantic comes out, sells 5,000 copies or, yeah. or less, and then, boom, they drop him. Yeah. It would have been interesting to see how this would have been different if Daniel hadn't had the episode, if he'd gone with Electra, if they'd been as supportive as that contract had indicated. Was there someone right. at the company who was a genuine fan? But right. you know, history isn't always kind and... 
No. This, this, this might have been more horrible, but filmically, it's certainly more poetic. And really, a lot of what we have here came out, I think it might have been you, Kerry, that said it's good that this came out as a documentary rather than as a biopic. And yet, when you sort of like tick off all the story elements that happen in you know, his early interest in music, running away to join the circus, art school, and his first love obsession, his first muse, this whole incident with him, you know, him uh, putting himself in mental hospitals and attacking managers with crowbars, nearly getting a record contract and then losing it. It's all the stuff of fiction and what they always say about fact being more bizarre and more interesting than fiction is certainly true here. You yeah. you couldn't write this stuff. No, no. No, I totally agree. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm now trying to cast the biopic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, so who would you put in? Who would you put in? It's not necessarily my first choice, but I think they. this is who a studio would pick. I think they would, for the younger years, they might pick like someone like Michael Sarah. Yeah, um, yep, yep. And then I think they could do uh, a Paul Giamatti for later for, you know, the older... Yeah. Or um, I was thinking Danny DeVito. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, All of a sudden, he's much shorter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, no, uh, yeah, no, definitely Michael Sarah. I can see, and Paul Giamatti already having the uh, experiences doing Harvey Pekar. I, I think that could definitely work. But yeah. uh, truthfully, I hope that they don't make a biopic. No, no, no. There's one at uh, one point in the film where actually I got a little leaky when Daniel's dad breaks down. Oh, yeah. When he's talking about when he's watching Daniel play in front of all those people. And then it turns around and the whole plane thing happens. <clears throat> no, he thought he was Casper. He was reading a Casper comic book. There's a picture on the front of the book of Casper in a parachute. And Dan decided, uh, let's, let's bail out. Let's jump out. I said, no, we can't do that. We don't have any parachutes. So his mind was gone. Eventually, he took the key out, turned the engine off, threw the key out the window. I had to recover the flight. Well, he grabbed the controls, took the plane away from me. I, he's stronger than me. We were finally going straight up and then straight down. But he finally let go in time for me to get it out of this man. It's like they go from the highest point of his life and his dad thinks this is it. He basically proved us all wrong. You know, he can really do it. And then he, he comes out and he, he says he was palming all his meds. He wasn't taking them at all. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, my God. Like, no. I don't know if this is a, an aspect that's, you know, kind of common in, in, in most people with mental illness, but the whole act of self-sabotage where somebody in the film says Daniel had this kind of cycle where just when he, he hit his highest point, you knew he was going to plummet. You know, and it just seemed like it was just too much for him to embrace, you know, just to be successful or to be happy or to just go forward. It's just something always had to reel him in. And I don't know if it was that angels and demons struggle or what have you, but, you know, but that was just so sad just to see his father really tormented by that. Yeah, I always wondered what it, they, they didn't mention schizophrenia. They, they say manic depressive disorder during the film. But I mean, I know that one of the big things, I think, with people with these kind of disorder that you have have to stay medicated right. is the attitude where I'm taking my medicine I'm feeling better I'm feeling better I am better I don't need the medicine you know right. and then and then well, they just stop, unfortunately stop taking the medicine and go kind of downhill not to go off on a tangent but like I years and years ago I used to actually work with people with mental health issues in a community drop-in center and part of our conditions were that you had to basically be on your meds you know if you were to participate in the drop-in center and I think that there's a lot of people get into this thing about resentment about resenting having to be uh, medicated all the time and then they like you're saying Carrie that they feel like they can get a grip on it and at first yes. you know it's just like well okay I'll be on meds 90% of the time and then I'll be myself 10% of the time and then okay I've got I've got control of that okay and then I'll go 70-30 and then I'll go 50-50 and then blah, and then that's it you can't and you can't live like that you have to be on your med and I think that's the whole thing about the angels and devils thing with Daniel is maybe this thing about you can do it you know you don't need those things uh, you know you're all right you can do it by you know be, be yourself you know you know don't be don't be tied down to the drugs daniel like you know and it's like no 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 it doesn't work like that so i can't remember if i read this or if they said this towards the end of the film where i think it was indicated that he won't be on meds on the day of a performance but otherwise he'd gotten it under control and was by you know, the end of the film or maybe post film he was taking the med regularly but just not on the day when he was going to do a show and then right. worked around there well there's a bit where he says too they like how are you feeling? And he's like, well, 
well, I'm all drugged up. I can't even write a song to save my life, you know? Like, that was when he had that year. Well, it was like the Brian Wilson right. bed, lying in bed for a year or something like that. He right. making the Brian Wilson comparison again, but he had a whole, right, right. A whole year. And so then he gives you, hi, how are you, and you have chump music. It's like, you know, imagine meeting... You know, Bob Dylan, and he gives you his first six albums and saying, oh, here's some, some stuff I'm working on. So it's this body of music where you're suddenly hearing 20 amazing songs, and, and they're out of nowhere from this weird little guy. I played it for a lot of music writers and some musicians, and, and he was giving it to other musicians, and gradually, over like a period of weeks, people began to talk a lot about who this crazy kid was, Daniel Johnson, and this really weird music. All right, so any final thoughts about Daniel Johnson as a performer, about the film itself, anything else you want to add? We'll start with you, Kerry. Well, thanks a lot for uh, putting this film on my radar, because I had not heard of it, or Daniel Johnston, sorry. I, I was unfamiliar with him. It, it was a fascinating film. I think it was very well made, and it made me want to learn more about him, which to me is the mark of a good film or and documentary in general. I mean, specifically. Yeah, no, I mean, he was a really fascinating subject. I, the only other musicians that I could think of, I, I kept thinking about Dot Wiggin, too. <laughs> like, for some, I don't know if you know Dot The Shags, Wiggin. yeah. The Shags, yeah. I happened to catch her in concert once, but because she opened for another one who's very similar, Jeff Mangum from Neutral Milk Hotel. Right, which oh, right. Yeah. I find I sort of see a relationship there. I'm not going to lie. I, I know everyone sees poetry, in, but I think she's just god-awful. Just, it's <laughs> the worst act I've ever seen. He was fantastic. His band, really wonderful. Really, it was a great night. She was, um, yeah, I just so bad. And <laughs> sadly... But I don't think he's in the same category, but it, I was just thinking of the sort of outsider music and the lo-fi and the sort of right. not, not caring about musicianship or anything as much, you know, as, as others. Just a really fascinating subject, and uh, I do like his art a lot. Yes. I, and I, I thought of him more as a, as a poet artist than as a musician, even though, as you said, he does have a knowledge of the structure of a song, yep. which he, I totally agree with you on that. But I just thought of him, his stuff is more poetry or spoken word or something like that that could right. be maybe turned into a, a little bit more melodic song by someone else which it has but wonderful film and I, I look forward to seeing more documentaries by this guy by this uh, Jeff Fierzeig I think talented. he's made one other documentary I can't remember what it was called but it was about one of the acts which we actually see in the film oh yeah it was the half Japanese right uh, right right Jad, Jad, uh, David Fair yeah yeah so I yeah. don't know that he's done that much else I might be wrong but that's the only other one that I sort of saw anything about so obviously a talented filmmaker someone who is keen on storytelling and less about film for film's sake it's more here's a great story this is the best way to tell it so yeah I'd, I'd be inclined to watch anything he would do from now on if I, if I could find it or find out about it so yeah great call going to Kerry's thought for a minute about his art it was almost like Dante's Inferno there's a bit at the end of the documentary where Daniel's sister says uh, a friend of mine in, who's in the mental health uh, field said, I know Daniel's going to go to heaven because he's been to hell. Mm. And and you can see it in his art. I mean, but his art, it's almost represented like Dante's Inferno, like a, like him him pulling himself through the throes of his illness, you know? You could almost also look at his, his artwork as a form of therapy, as a form of him dealing with, you know, his emotions and being his kind of own psychiatrist, so to speak, and, and, and just putting it all on the page, you know, regardless of whether it's sensical or nonsensical. But there's a real method to his madness. There's a real, there's symbology in everything he, he's doing there. It's not just, you know, scribbles at all. There's a real mythology that he's established you know like there's a guy at the end of the documentary when um, runs that art place in LA who basically says that you know that Daniel's created his own mythos in, well he's, in he's got these recurring characters in his art right doesn't he? absolutely yes. absolutely yeah 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 now as for the film itself I think the film really works amazingly well as a bridge between listening and if you were just to initially listen to Daniel's music right off the cuff like for example you have jump on YouTube or something you might think what the hell Right, I, I don't get it. But then, you know, as a companion piece, with you know, the documentary is a bridge, I think, to really helping understand who he is and what he's all about. You know, I think the the film in itself really, really helps open up an understanding of, of, of Daniel, you know, and where he's coming from. And, it, and I thought it was really brave of him as well to allow himself to be so exposed. And I mean, even to the point of playing the cassette tapes of him recording himself, and it's almost like at times like you were like a fly on the wall 
Like, for example, when he said, I think he was at his brother's house when he's playing that tape and he's like, I have to be quiet now. I just got the extension cord from my mother that I requested. You know, it's like a little kid. It's like with his first Sears tape recorder, you know, and it, I don't know. There's just real personable parts to this that I, I love. But like I said, I think the film is a real bridge and a real open door to helping understand what Daniel Johnston is all about. I don't really have a whole heap to add. I did have thoughts about as to whether this was going to be a study in the emperor's new clothes were people out there supporting him because he was the cool hip thing who'd been on MTV and because Kurt Cobain had supported him but once again as you've just gone and said Jim the film ends up being a study of here's Daniel Johnson he's a fella and he made music and he made art and there are people who admire what he does and they have their reasons and they've gone and made their versions of his music and they've gone and admired his art and as we said earlier on in the show it showed all the good the bad about who he is but there's no sense of cynicism and I really really like that I mean I had my initial thoughts before watching this or maybe just after watching it and just the more I've been thinking about it I thought yeah I'm really glad that the film was made in this fashion Jeff has been not just respectful of his subject matter but he's been respectful of his audience as well right 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 this is that's true this is uh, I'm not going to over emotionalize this this is I'm not here to break your heart I'm not here to make you angry I'm just here to tell you a story and I think as Scott Smart went and wrote in his email to us he said it's just pure reportage and that's what it is the emotion any emotion that you feel is as a result of what the story itself dictates the thing is too with the subject matter with you know with daniel it's there's a lot of people like you know that were really trying to push him on others like do you get it do you hear it do you mm-hmm. get it you know mm-hmm. and if you're really trying to elicit an emotion from somebody that's disingenuous then it, it's it's of no service to daniel at all so i mean like to really just lay it on the line and say here it is like you're saying you know like warts and all it's just reporting it's like what you get out of it is an honest emotion motion that's on you it's not on us trying to drum up any type of ha- pulling on the heartstrings for daniel it's, yeah it's, it's none of that at all it's I mean, not manipulative it's no. it's actually organic you know i mean right. there's a yeah i i agree with you well, all i gotta do is act naturally <laughs> i want to play this guy i have a damn soul he's trying to warn the rest of the world it was my fate to become famous and uh also to be damned that concludes our discussion of The Devil and Daniel Johnston. Thanks so much, Scott, for making that request because I had heard of this film, but I don't know that I necessarily would have gone to it, but I'm now so glad that I've watched it and it won't be the last time I watch this. This will uh, definitely be something that I come back to, I think, in a couple of years. And uh, I think we've had a, a great conversation. I hope that you've enjoyed it, Scott, and I know I certainly have. I hope that you two guys have enjoyed having this conversation. So, first of all, thanks to you, Kerry, so much for joining us. And really, just this was not a film that you knew anything about, not an artist that you knew anything about. And I just said, hey, want to join us to do this and within the spirit of wanting to discover something new you said yes so really uh, we're, we're extremely grateful to you for, for uh, joining us Carrie. well great thanks so much i as i said before i appreciate your turning me on to this film because as you just mentioned it was not on my radar i might have come across it and said hmm, interesting okay next but i'm just very glad that i didn't that i did watch it and that i got a chance to talk to you two fellows about it what we'll do is later on in the year i think uh, we're gonna have to have you back and get you to pick the film because i think well we've gone and foisted something on you now it's your turn to uh, turn us onto a film so we'll um, definitely have you back uh, later on this year we'd love to have you back a fantastic conversationalist right? challenge accepted huzzah well done <laughs> so thus concludes episode 51 of C here we're going to talk about next episode episode 52 so next month which will be uh, May 2018 Tim it's your pick what have we got okay. on okay well Morris behind the scenes for a minute I said to you that I was looking at one selection and I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to change my mind. Oh, no. Okay. Yes. Now, after going through this last episode and talking about a, a troubled musician and a connection to, you know, the stylings of Mr. Brian Wilson, mm-hmm. we are going to be looking at another documentary. Okay. And this documentary is entitled, Who is Harry Nilsson and Why is Everybody Talking About It? <laughs> oh, cool. I'm, I'm, so, I'm, I'm actually surprised that you haven't done that a long time ago because I know you're a huge Harry Nilsson fan. And- oh, yeah. Trying to, you, I was sit, turn me onto the point, sit, like a, a sitting a on this. Oh my sit, god, the point! Absolutely, I love that film. I mean, I love that wall, the film, and the album to no end. Some of the earliest memories of childhood were watching Dustin Hoffman on television with the point, with you know, listening to the album over and over and over. Mm. But anyway, yeah, we're going to be covering the life and times of Harry Nelson next month on See Here. Looking forward to that. So the whole title is Who 
is Harry Nilsson? And why is everybody talking about him? Right. Okay, extremely looking forward to that. Talk about him and uh, no doubt the Hollywood vampires and mm-hmm. uh, all that sort of thing. So yeah, there's plenty to be talked about. So uh, so you a fan of this film? You're a fan of Harry Nilsson in general, are you, Kerry? I am, very much so. Love his work. And I the point, oh my gosh, the, the few of us in school that like kind of got it, it became a sort of a weird cult thing for us. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and then I've seen the other one. What is the vampire one that he's in? Because I've seen that one too, and I can't oh, remember the name I, uh, of it. Was it Son of Dracula or something like that? Right. He, he made, made with Ringo. Did he make right. Yeah, yeah. It is Son of Dracula. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. Well, Kerry, putting you on the spot. You want to join us next month? Sure. Okay. I'd love to. Ah, there we go. Okay. It's uh, you, Because you showed such enthusiasm about the subject matter, I thought, well, well, okay, give you a chance to come back and talk about something that you were already in love with. So <laughs> there you go. We'll be a quartet next month. Looking extremely forward to that. So housekeeping things. If you wish to join the Facebook group devoted to the podcast, it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here. S-W-E-H-E-A-R. If you wish to send us an email, then you can write to us at podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to get more people come and join the group and start some conversations or send us emails with your thoughts like Scott did. And we're all having a lot of fun talking about music-related films. That's what we do. It's what we love. We love all sorts of things, but the purpose of this podcast is to talk about music-related films. And uh, as we've talked about off-air, Tim, there seems to be no limit to, to them. And our good friend Eric Reanimator, a.k.a. Eric Peterson, has said that we are living in the golden age of the music documentary. We've had a couple open up in the cinema here very recently, and it's a wonderful thing to see. A couple of Australian-made music documentaries, so very, very exciting. Oh, one thing I wanted to say before we go is that the new Radio Birdman documentary is actually doing a tour of North America right now, and there was a screening that was actually done in uh, Detroit, and Dennis Tech actually showed up for that. Wow. I wonder if uh, Eric yeah. went to that. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I mean, but I just want to put it out there to anyone who's fans of the, the radios that the documentary is playing through North America right now, so, you know, keep your eyes open and ears open on the ground. I think it's inevitable we'll be talking about that film on the show uh, yeah. this year, so. Oh, big time. Mm. Okay, so once again, Kerry, thank you so much. Now, your blogs, uh, there's prowlerneedsajump.wordpress.com and I was looking it up, Brattleblog, that's B-R-A-T-T-L-E blog, brattleblog.brattlefilm.org. Anywhere else that you're writing? Occasionally at the B-Movie Maniacs uh, site. <laughs> I have two partners and every Friday night we do a, uh, a live tweet on Twitter of uh, something classically not necessarily great. Uh, <laughs> so could be The Brain That Wouldn't Die or The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake or uh, The Creeping Terror or Love Monos terror. or yeah. something like that. You know? and, so yeah, we do every Friday night and we do have a, a website at, which I occasionally write small things for, but mostly it's the live tweet that every <laughs> every Friday night, 11 p.m. Eastern, if you look for the B Movie Maniacs hashtag on Twitter, then uh, we'll be talking about a movie. And it's always a free movie that's on YouTube that's available to anyone. So, and we all just press play at the same time and, and watch it. Nice. And it's, it's a good time. So, a, a live commentary, as it were. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of like the MSC3K attitude toward it. But our attitude is positive because we are not, and, and they are too, I think, but we're not trashing the films. Or I mean, my partners and I are not anyway. We're loving the fact that on $6,000, they were able to make a bat fly out of a guy's head or something. I mean, that's right. just, that's our habit happiness you know sure alright so I'll put up all those links in the show notes when the podcast goes up so until next month watch some good movies watch some B movies listen to some fantastic (laughs) music Uh, listen to a Daniel Johnson album be it Yip Yip Jump or Fun get your own opinion listen to the great Daniel Johnson because you get to compare the covers with the originals read some wonderful books and just generally be nice to each other it's what we try to do Bernie we hope that you come back next month and talk to us about Harry Nelson hope uh, you've had a good time tonight at Aberfest. Everyone else out there, just be nice to each other. Okay, speak to you soon. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 